One thing I came to learn very quickly was you can lose an audience extremely quickly if you're not speaking in their language. I think when you're speaking, when you're teaching concepts or when you're explaining something that's maybe difficult to understand, you want to reduce the layers of complexity. So what that means is, you know, like the content itself might be hard, or the concepts might be hard, but if the vocabulary you're using is also difficult, then there's two different things you're trying to process at the same time, and you basically lost them. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. We are back to explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. Joining me this week, we have a keynote speaker, a senior marketing manager at TELUS, and my long-lost friend from university, Raza Khan. Good to have you on. It's great to be here, David. Thank you for having me. Raza, from the outset, you've got to be one of the most motivational people that I know. What motivates you in life? What's your source of motivation? Yeah, I'd say it's, it's really weird. I think I have two key sources of motivation, and they're actually very interlinked with each other. So my, my first key source of motivation is to become hyper-competent. I want to be very smart. I think that's just kind of like, I think it's really cool. I think it's, it's really cool, really attractive to be the best version of yourself, and it gives you purpose. And then the second key thing that makes me motivated is to help other people grow because, you know, you give a speech or you mentor someone and you see their eyes light up and you see how they become better in their own lives and they feel so grateful. When I see them do, like when I see them become so happy, it makes me want to work even harder so I can become even better so I can keep helping them out. So it becomes this perpetual cycle of becoming smarter, helping others, becoming smarter to help more, helping more because I want to become smarter. That kind of motivates me. Does that answer your question, David? Absolutely. Knowledge and stewardship. Way better said. Yeah, way better and more concise than what I said. Yeah, but that's something that I wanted to ask you about because I, I want to learn from you. You're a, a really gifted speaker as well. And and I remember a few years ago when we were together and you were drilling down to me how important it is to speak with simplicity. Uh, how have you learned that over the years? That's an interesting question. Just for the context, I guess, of the audience, I graduated in 2016 with D-Man. Uh, David, I call him D-Man, and uh, it's it's a pet. It's like a, it's a fun name. We go way back, and uh, I ended up teaching at Western for two years. So I, I taught at the Ivy Business School, and one thing I came to learn very quickly was you can lose an audience extremely quickly if you're not speaking in their language. I think when you're speak, when you're teaching concepts or when you're explaining something that's maybe difficult to understand, you want to reduce the layers of complexity. So what that means is, you know, like the content itself might be hard, or the concepts might be hard. But if the vocabulary you're using is also difficult, then there's two different things you're trying to process at the same time and you basically lost them. And so I think like by going through that experience, I learned the importance of being able to just like simplify, explaining their language, making metaphors, making analogies that help it make sense. So that it's an easier gap for them to kind of cross over. That really resonated with me. And I would see that you're a huge basketball fan. We would talk about ratios and different kinds of ratios, stability ratios. For stability ratios, I talked about LeBron James. For growth ratios, I'd be like, this is DeMar DeRozan, because every year in the summer, he goes and works on his game and comes back with a new thing. Those simple things make the audience really understand. And I've got to imagine that being a lecturer would be an ideal training ground to foster that simplicity, but without dumbing it down to take away from the knowledge, because you are conveying complex truths, right? That's a fantastic uh, insight. You're absolutely right. At the end of the day, your your goal is to teach course content. That's it. There's no if, ands, and buts. How you do it's up to you. So you could be as friendly as you want to, but the insight has to be shared and you have exams for that reason. So I think it's absolutely right. You have to find the, 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 the fine balance between making it accessible and fun and engaging while also being informative and getting the actual terms and conditions you know, signed off. What sort of speaking have you done, Roz? I know it hasn't been just limited to being a lecturer but your experience has gone beyond that. 
Yeah, I, I break it down into, so like lecturer was kind of my job. I think extracurricularly, which is not a part of my job, I break it down into maybe one of three categories. So one, I'll talk about internal at TELUS, one about external at different conferences, and one volunteering. So TELUS, I love teaching. Teaching at Western really woke something in me. So I look for opportunities to help other people out. I speak at TELUS five to 10 times a year. And it's just speaking with different internal teams, different director groups or, you know, the new uh, full-time rotational students that we have or the interns that we have, teaching them business concepts or teaching them how to network or whatever the case is, but it's to level them up. So that's something I do for fun. It goes from audiences of five to 50 people. Bucket two, as I mentioned, is conferences. I speak at different business conferences across Canada. And it's just basically speaking to students about things like practical problem solving and game theory and telecom or uh, navigating uncertainty. And so I do a lot of that. That's about 20 to 30 times a year. And then the balance is United Way. I grew up in like, a, I'd say like an at-risk neighborhood. And I was one of the recipients of the amazing work they do to make people, I guess, like aspire for more with their lives. So now I speak on behalf of them to show, you know, what donations can do and what good service systems can do for students. So I speak at different businesses across Canada. I think those three things kind of encapsulate all the speaking I do. Mm, very cool. And yeah, I want to just go back in time a little bit because as you say, simplicity and, you know, understanding your audience, these are, are valuable assets to speaking, but you have this gift of charisma too, which, which comes back to your upbringing and, and your family's journey that I don't think necessarily can be taught. What is that? Could you just give my audience a bit of a glimpse into where Raza Khan comes from? Yeah. Thank you, David, for asking that. It's a very thoughtful question. I was born in Pakistan in Lahore, which is like, you know, really big city there. My parents were both engineers. My dad was an engineer for the government. He went to the best university there. He came from a very, you know, lower middle income family. And like, he was basically self-made into, you know, really middle-class individual. My mom was a professor at a university. So like both very educated, both very successful. Both of my parents came here for a better opportunity for my, myself. And then, you know, I mentioned my brother as he came along in our lives. Um, and so from Pakistan, you know, came here when I was three and then it was really witnessing the struggle my parents went through. So I think one really interesting thing is to get into the country, you have to have like certain education, certain points. And my parents passed that, fortunately. But then to get a job is a different story because the government's, you know, checking off one mark or one box, but then employers have to check off the other. So my parents had a really hard time despite their education and experience. My dad drove a cab for, I think, 25 years. My mom, like factory work. She did her master's at McMaster's, but then couldn't find a job. She was working, you know, an unemployed, like she's working on an unpaid internship as like a 40 year old woman. And just seeing the grit that both my parents had to just work, work as hard as they possibly could. So my brother and I could have a better life and giving up everything they left in Pakistan for us really made me want to work hard but also like be positive about life because, you know, whatever difficulties I have, it's so much more privileged than what my parents went through. So it adds so much context for me. It just makes me smile at, you know, most of my problems. I remember back in university and there was a time where it wasn't for certain that you were going to get into the, the advance in your program to go to Ivy Business School. And I remember it was really weighing on you. You think there was a certain level of pressure that you felt given what had transpired by your parents up until that time? Of course, man, I, I felt a lot of pressure and I still feel a lot of pressure because I feel like my parents sacrificing their lives and working jobs that weren't glamorous and 
leaving behind their friends and family in Pakistan. Like that was, you know, I guess the debt that they paid and I'm supposed to be the outcome of it. Like the product of, you know, my accomplishments is, I guess, uh, the sum of all of their sacrifices, right? That's kind of how I feel. So you imagine like going to the top business school or one of the top business schools in Canada, getting an awesome job, being successful. These are all ways I can show my parents your sacrifice was worth it. You know, I'm paying you back. I love you guys. I'll take care of you. And so not being able to accomplish part of that deal really made me stressed out. So yeah, to answer your question, D-Man, I was really stressed out about it. It definitely weighed down on me. And I find that it's still a constant motivator and a bit of a stressor. Am I doing enough to justify what my parents have given up in their own lives? Hmm. Oh, it's a, something to, to sit on for sure. Maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later on. So sticking at Western here for a moment, after you graduate, you get this job as a lecturer and you find pretty much immediate success in that, at least by students' acknowledgement. Nothing is off limits for you in the classroom and you are having students come to you after hours. You're connecting. It seems like you were you were born to do this. Could you give us a little glimpse into what a day in uh, Raza Khan's lecture hall would be like? Yeah, I, I love the question. And I have to preface by saying teaching was, you, you know, you're looking at me on video right now. And I have this massive smile on my face. Teaching was by far the best experience I've had in my life and something I cherish forever. So for everyone's context, the class that I taught, 10% of your grade came from contribution. So students had to participate to get that contribution mark. And it was a really big part of the class. So, you know, before every class, I would roam around the hall for like 20 minutes. And I'd look for students that I knew were not doing that strong in contribution. And I'd be like, you know, hey, how's it going? How are you finding class? Like, do you know the answer to this question? If not, I'm going to ask it. I'm going to cold call you. But, you know, here's the answer. You'll get a 10 out of 10 contribution. So I think by doing that, I was able to kind of get a gauge on what to hyper, like over index on in the classroom and to make sure that people who are maybe having a harder time were being engaged. We actually start the class and class was a ton of fun because we'd always start off by checking in. How's everyone doing? Is everyone having a good time? Anything you want to talk about, you know, is life okay? Talk about maybe some funny things that are happening in our lives going to the content. And every time we went into the content, it was trying my best to make sure that everyone understands the big picture. How does this fit into the theory, business theory concept? What are some analogies we can make to help make things make sense? I knew all of my students by name and I knew something individual about all of my students. So every time the opportunity came, yeah, I was really invested in my students. And every time the opportunity came to, you know, draw on someone's like insight or, you know, background, I'd be like, oh, like, what do you think? And I know your dad owns a dealership and we're talking about cars. Do you have any perspective on this case? That was fantastic. And then we'd wrap it up, always checking in on my class. We'd pause sometimes and just have heart to hearts. Is everyone feeling okay? What do you want me to work on? And then we finish class. And as class finishes, I'd follow some of my students outside and say, how was that? How are you feeling? What do we have to change? And is the content being understood by you? Am I doing a good enough job of making it easy to follow along with? That was basically, I think a lot of times students would come back to my office and we'd kind of just maybe dive deeper in some of the content or I, I'd be an ear for them to, to speak to. Um, and then also students would be really excited to give me recommendations for music because every class would start off with 10 minutes of music before the class starts. Wow. Sounds like a riot. Raza, didn't you also have some tip that you offered to students too that was uh, even practical and maybe outside of the classroom? Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. It, I used to do these, these uh, like, I guess like once a month or once every couple of weeks, I would do kind of Raza's lesson of the day. And so I think one of the reasons I, I taught was because 
like not even for teaching or public speaking, just for helping, I guess, counsel or guide people through their journeys in, in university. You know, for context, when I went to first year, I had a really hard time adjusting and I found myself going through a bit of depression. I gained a lot of weight. My marks inversely dropped significantly and it was just not a great time for me. And so part of the reason I took this job was because I wanted to help shape the future of these students and help make their lives better. So, you know, once a month or once every couple of weeks, Raza's lesson of the day, where I'd kind of share something that really means a lot to me. And I would maybe take a minute or two from class at the end of the class and explain a concept with the hope that they get more from their lives because they now know this. So that was kind of the intent. I think it was pretty successful because a lot of students really liked it. And even now, students that I keep in touch with will kind of bring up a reference how this changed their perspective. So that was a big part of what I did. Raza, you then received a pretty prestigious award from Western, the youngest lecturer, to be given an award recognizing your lecturing abilities. Congratulations again on that. Thank you. I wonder, upon receiving something like that and, and finding such a comfort zone with these students, did this open your eyes up to maybe what else could still come for your life because you're doing such amazing things at a miraculously young age? I appreciate you saying that. And I think it's really hard for me to like agree that it's, you know, miraculous things at a young age. I think it's like so hard for me to fathom that and agree with it. But I think what it, what it did like tell me was it's something I want to be a part of my life forever in perpetuity, like helping people, coaching people, helping them, like teaching them stuff are parts, elements in my life that I need to have a fulfilling life. That was probably the biggest takeaway because that award really validated that this is a part of my life that I need to have because it makes me happy. I think it's something that I'm not bad at doing. And it's something that like just has a real purpose to my my being as a human. And you then move on to uh, work with one of the big uh, telecommunications companies in the country at, at TELUS. Uh, what has that journey been like? It's been really interesting. So I joined TELUS in July of 2018. I finished teaching in May of 2018. So a couple of months afterwards, I was looking for basically a role where I would get to work in a business capacity because I, I did business in my undergrad and I wanted to work in business, but it wasn't just any like function. What I wanted to do was, you know, work in an industry or work in a role where I would be able to like get a problem statement, ideate for that problem statement, and then do all the steps of execution, including iteration, analysis, you know, understanding the benefits it's driven, how to make it better moving forward, and then repeat again. So TELUS was the first opportunity I had with that. And originally I thought, ah, telco, it's not as sexy as other, you know, potential opportunities. Excuse my language, David. <laughs> it's, it's not as amazing as other opportunities. Telco is just, just a big three. It's an oligopoly. So I was very pessimistic going into it. But I've been here for three and a half years and I've loved my experience. So it was a really pleasant surprise. And what I learned from, you know, just working at Telus is you really have to own your destiny. Whatever you do, you have to find the good and over index to make that your future. Hmm. And you've progressed in your role at TELUS. You're currently the senior marketing manager. How has this given you more insight into the role that, that cell phones, internet play in the life of everyday Canadians? What I do at TELUS right now is I sit on the Kudo team. Kudo is one of the brands that TELUS owns. And my job is specifically on the base management team. So we have a base of 2.5 million customers. My specific role is to find customers and get them to stay with us. So I'm on the churn side of the business. And so it's make sure customers stay and that they make profitable like decisions with us or profitable uh, experiences with us. So that's kind of what it is. I think I'm a little far removed from 
the customer's like day-to-day life or the importance that telco plays in their life. But I imagine it's extremely important. I think like of all 35-ish Canadian, 35-ish million Canadians, I think there's a really high saturation rate of cell phones. I think every everyone has a cell phone. I think it's a massive part of their lives. But more so my job is to make sure the customers stay with us and that they're happy with us. And if you were to be a predictor, do you think home phones will eventually phase out? Like, uh, you mean like actual home phones, like your parents have a home phone in their house. That's right. That's right. I'd be very curious if that didn't happen. Maybe like a TikTok trend is going to come and kids will think it's really cool to have home phones again, which will be like a lit last minute surge, you know, like brands like Champion made a comeback. But barring that happening, I don't see home phones coming back. I think home phones will constantly decline. Why do you ask? Well, because I, I, I see it. I mean, I think guys like you and I don't necessarily have home phones that are at our residences and our parents do. And there's that we've grown up with these. So why do we need another line? Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Because you think about telco 20 years ago and home phone was a massive component of our you know monthly revenue. And now home phone is probably decreasing, as you mentioned, because people like you and I who are now peak purchasing power don't purchase it. So one cool thing about telco, I guess, is finding ways to still get your attention and ways for you to proactively want to spend your dollars on products that might not be interested, like replace the products that aren't interesting to you with products that are interesting to you and still, you know, create revenue from it. That's fair. And perhaps more than ever, there's uh, movement at jobs and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a lot about, you know, what can I get out of this? How can I fulfill this desire? And you've done that, but you've also found joy. Do you think it's the, the desires that you have that are quite pure that have kept you grounded in that way? Uh, it's kind of hard to call myself pure, but I, I would say maybe True. the, like, I wish. Well, the desires can be pure, but we can't, but well, we're not necessarily pure. That's right? fair. That's fair. Yeah, I think like I think my desire is to become smarter, help people and do good work. I think those are three really core things to me. So it's kind of hard for me to say if, if they're pure desires. But I think one more thing is like I have been really, really, really lucky to just work with the best human beings in the world. Everywhere I go, I meet amazing people and I'm so fortunate for it. And when you meet amazing people, it's hard not to be grateful and want to pay it forward to them and to show loyalty towards them. Because if someone is so great to you, it's just the right thing to do to reciprocate it. So I think it's just really like, it's a stroke of luck. Bringing this full circle, you've done a lot in your life and you have a real desire to go forward and to to help people, which I think is, uh, which is awesome, which is very utilitarian. But I really think that the way that you perceive life is that you you see it as a gift. I mean, you, you use the word lucky. I feel like I've heard you use the word blessed before too. You have a Muslim upbringing You've told me you believe in God. Do you think that if more people saw their life as a gift, as something that they've been uh, handed? I mean, we're not, we're not, I'm not downplaying, I'm not downplaying the work that we have to put in in life. But if they saw that there was some element of a gift, you've, you've been so blessed to have opportunities to be surrounded with people. Do you think that that would help us flip a switch and, and see life with more purpose? I would hope so. One of the benefits of believing in a creator, I think one of the the big benefits of it is it it gives you the belief that everything that happens is for the best. And it might not be for the best for you as David Mann or me as Reza Khan, but like it might be for the best for the, even the universe or the world in some way. And just, you know, God works in mysterious ways. I think like 
believing in God gives me the confidence that everything happens for the best, even if it is not great for me, and to just trust that. And so, you know, when times are not great, it allows me to feel really good. So I'll give you a quick story. I had a brain tumor in uh, 2014, and I had it removed in 2016. I had a, I had brain surgery in 2016, and it was obviously a very troubling and scary time. Like brain surgery is not cool. Right after finishing school, it's especially not cool. And so all, all of our friends were going on grad trips. I was going to the hospital for like pre-ops and meeting my endocrinologist and brain surgeon and whatever the case is. But where I'm going with this is definitely a scary time. You know, definitely there's a high likelihood of complications and spoiler alert, complications have happened and complications for the rest of my life. They're going to impact me. And that's fine. I think what kept me strong throughout the entire process was one, I want to be a pillar for my family because they're having a hard time. I want to be someone that can support them while they're, you know, suffering and scared. But more important, number two, I truly believe in my being. No matter what happens, it's in the best interest. Even if it's against me, it'll be good for the universe in some way. And it's going to be a, it's going to balance out in some way, potentially, right? So I think that gives me the freedom to be positive and to look for the good because I believe the good is happening. If you know the good is happening, it's a lot easier to look for it. Do you know what I'm saying? As opposed to like questioning life or what the purpose of it is. So that's why I think that's how I, I relate it back to believing in God. If I believe in God, I have the confidence to know things are happening for good, which gives me the confidence to see the good and make me positive. Takes me right back to uh, 2012 with your slogan to run as the representative for our residents. Yes, we con. Thank you for remembering that. That was the best gift my parents gave me next to moving to Canada. <laughs> the last name, Khan. A lot of puns. Yeah, conveniently right after uh, Barack Obama's campaign, not too long after he, he brought that to the service with Yes, We Can. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I influenced him. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps. Uh, Raza, it's been a treat to uh, catch up with you and to hear a little bit about the journey that, that you've been on. And I wish you the best as you continue to, to blaze trails, to speak to the masses, and to most importantly, from your perspective, help people to steward the knowledge that you've been given and better our country and the world. Really appreciate this time. D-Man, thank you so much, man. It's, it's really a pleasure. I think it's the, the biggest compliment in the world to be asked to you know speak on, on your podcast. And I'm really honored. So thank you so much. And thank you to the audience if you made it this far. And if you want to find out anything more about Raza's journey, or the work that he's done with TELUS, you can head to davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. The Freedom Convoy has raised a division in Canada that may be unprecedented. With calls for both protesters to go home and for the government to throw in the towel, we'll consider what it takes to get elected into office. Philippe Fournier is considered to be Canada's foremost election predictor, and with provincial elections slated for Ontario and Quebec this year, we'll find out what to expect in the lead-up. Well, I will start by saying, David, that uh, I was approached by several parties. I even had some offers to buy me out at some point early in, the, in this project. I declined because it's my baby project and getting rid of it would take all the fun. For Culture at a Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today. And we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.